This afternoon, we'll continue our series working our way through the examination of the natural state of man. And for this afternoon's sermon, we'll be reading through Genesis 3. Genesis 3. God has just finished creating everything and has declared it to be very good. He's placed man in the garden to tend the garden and to be a good steward of what's in his care. And they are currently carrying out that task to the glory of God. And we come to chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden on the cool of the, in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed, more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made them tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put his hand out and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of God. Today we'll continue working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism. And we've come to the second Lord's Day which discusses our position as natural man, our, our sin and misery. Lord's Day 3. And you'll be able to find that on page 519 of your book of praise. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No, on the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he may rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable, unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, as we're coming through our series on the natural state of man, looking to the Heidelberg Catechism as a framework, we've come across some startling realities. The main one, if you were here last week, the main one that you may remember from last week is that man has within himself the capacity for terrible evil. It puts in him the ability to do so much harm. Our catechism says it with shocking plainness. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. It's soaked through everything. And so is known as the doctrine of total depravity. Now, this isn't to say that I always hate everyone as much as I can, God and my neighbor. It doesn't mean that those who don't have the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit aren't able to be moral at all. But it does mean that my natural inclination is both against God and my neighbor. Total depravity means two things. We're bad through and through in our head, heart, and will. And we're unable to do anything truly righteous because even our good acts don't come from faith and do not aim at the glory of God. That's a pretty big deal. That's not a good situation to be in. But when you see a, a crying child walking around with a broken toy, the natural question comes to mind, how did it break? When you see humanity walking around in such a state, the question is, how this happened? And our catechism puts that question right out there. Is it God's fault? 
Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? Today we'll be looking at that question under the following theme, the fall into sin. And we'll see, first of all, man's responsibility, and then God's response. Coming into our Bible text, we find man at the beginning of time, when the earth is in its earliest stages. God has created man and put him in the garden to work it. He built into man a satisfaction that he gets out of his work. It's good to be productive. It's good to see the fruit of your labor. It's meant to bring joy to you, that you're doing this task for the glory of God. And it's meant to bring joy that it's benefiting those who are around you. We read in our catechism that God created man good. And Genesis 1 and 2 back this up. God created man and said that this creation of his was very good. But that's obviously not the case anymore. We see that in wars, in school shootings, and even in ourselves. What's happened since then? God lays it out for us in this chapter. And I want you to pay careful attention to what's here. Because this is what's behind the Lord's Supper that we're going to be celebrating next week. This is the reason why we need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to redeem us from what started here in the garden. So we find the man and woman in the Garden of Eden. They're living and working there, naked and without shame. God's given them everything. They may do and eat anything they want to do and eat. He's quite literally given them the world. But he had one exception. They may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happens? The devil, disguised as a snake, talks to them. He convinces them that the fruit from the tree is desirable, that it's something that they should want. Eve looks at the tree. We see that in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. It never was an issue before. It was one more among many in the garden, just one she didn't eat of. But when the possibility opened up, she let herself be tempted. When the possibility came up, she looked at this tree with new eyes. It says she saw it. She looked at it and couldn't look away. She took from the tree and she ate and she gave it to her husband and he ate as well. I'm reminded of the foolish young man who walks through the streets of the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7. There's no need for him to be there. He's putting himself into a situation to be tempted. Catching him by the arm, she speaks to him with drippingly sweet words. There's a moment of hesitation, and all at once or suddenly, he follows her like a calf to the slaughter. How long have you yourselves looked at something? Perhaps an email you shouldn't open, or a response you shouldn't send with your mouse hovering over, ready to click. A moment of hesitation, 
looking at something that tempts you with eyes of desire, when in any normal situation, you might not look at it twice, and then doing it. They ate from it, and their eyes were opened. In a moment, they were able to see what they were capable of, now having crossed the line into sin, and it made them self-conscious and fearful. Their eyes were opened to an awareness of the world as they had never imagined before, knowing both good and evil. Before, man could only ever see the good that everything in this world could be used for. This tree was the only thing in the world that God allowed man to see as something which could be used sinfully. Everything else, he could only see how it could be used for good. Imagine that. But now having eaten the fruit, the fruit became a gateway into a whole new world. They became like God, but not in the way that they had hoped. God knew good and evil because he placed rules to protect mankind, boundaries within which they could flourish. But man knew good and evil because he had crossed that boundary by taking of the fruit, and now he saw a world which lay on the other side. He had passed through the gateway, and the world is observed with new eyes. Every single thing suddenly became something that could be used for good and evil, to the praise of God or for their own selfish purposes and advancement. Even each other. Even each other. They saw each other with new eyes. They saw each other how they themselves were vulnerable, how they themselves might be hurt, and in turn learned how to hurt others. And having done it, they were ashamed. They shrink from each other, putting on fig leaves in a pitiful attempt to hide themselves from the other's gaze. Not familiar with the feeling of shame, they're overwhelmed by it. They've done something wrong, and the wrongness of it fills them, and they flee from God. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Temptation. You facing the snake in the garden. You failing. You being overwhelmed by shame. That's why we read the law at the beginning of the form for the Lord's Supper. It's a chance for you to look at yourself. To examine yourself. And that's the reason it's so thorough as well. Turn to that for a moment. You'll be able to find that on page 593 of your book of praise. These are sins which call you to abstain from the table of the Lord. To abstain from the table of the Lord. Lord's Supper next week. Pardon me, I don't think it's page... 593, 603, and then 604 under the invitation and admonition. It says there, 
midway down the second paragraph in. It says, those who find themselves to be guilty of the following offensive sins to abstain from the table of the Lord and declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ. And then we come to the place where we want to focus here. All who refuse to trust in the Lord alone or who serve him in their own manner. All who abuse the name of the Lord by cursing or in any other way. All who do not diligently attend the worship services and who despise the proclamation of God's word or the sanctity of the sacraments. All who are disobedient to their parents or to others in authority over them. All who violate human life or cherish hatred against their neighbor and refuse to be reconciled with him. All who either within or outside of holy wedlock do not keep their bodies pure. All who by stealing, greed, or extravagance lead a worldly life. All liars, backbiters, and slanderers. Briefly, all who either in word or conduct show themselves to be unbelieving by leading an offensive life. These are the Ten Commandments. More specifically, how the Ten Commandments are worked out in Scripture. They're written in such a way to declare to you that you've probably broken these, if not that you can see in this past week, then still in recent months or years. And in a conscience that hasn't been blunted by repeated sins, this knowledge ought to bring deep shame. The shame that Adam and Eve felt when they were in the garden. Now, a few years ago, I met someone who was visiting our church from a different denomination, and he was frustrated by the fact that we read this part of the form. He was frustrated by that. He found it legalistic. Who are you to say that people who struggle with those sins ought not to take part in the Lord's Supper and have no part in the kingdom of God? Well, let's turn our eyes back to the garden for a moment and God's response. Adam and Eve see each other with new eyes. They see this part of the world, these possibilities that they had never imagined before. And they sew on fig leaves to cover themselves, pitiful outward reflections of what's going on in their own souls. We see them filled with shame. But in the midst of all that shame, in the midst of all that shame, they hear the voice of God. That in itself is remarkable. God knew what happened. They could have instead experienced a thunderbolt from heaven, striking them immediately dead for their sin. But that's not what happens. Instead, they hear the voice of God. This isn't God suddenly not being able to see, as some have suggested when they run into this passage. They think, oh, you know, suddenly you read that God who's all-powerful isn't able to see through some bushes. No, that's not what it's about. It's God calling out in patience and compassion. Hearing God's voice, we see Adam and Eve run and hide. And in the face of God's righteousness, wouldn't that be our natural reaction as well? But Adam and Eve's experience is the experience of each and every one of you today. As we come before the table of the Lord, we don't get struck dead by a thunderbolt from heaven 
as we rightfully deserve. Instead, we first hear the voice of God calling out, Adam, Eve, where are you? God is showing mankind that they have nowhere to run. They have nowhere to hide, but they need to come to him. And with that realization, trembling, Adam and Eve come to him. Why were they hiding? Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You may not hear it in as many words, but Adam is already shifting the blame here. I was naked. I was afraid. You made me afraid, and I hid from you. God challenges him. Who told you that you were naked? He is giving a man a chance to come clean, but instead man says, the woman you gave me So often we try to blame our fear and our shame on other people. So it's not a surprise to find that it's a pattern which stretches right back to the beginning, is it? Finding fault with God. Finding fault with his wife. That wonderful gift that God had given him. Finding fault. God moves on to his wife. Man is aggravating, not diminishing his own crime. But the wife, too, aggravates her crime by blaming her own sin on another one of God's creations instead of taking personal responsibility. And what flows from this event for all involved are words of judgment. This, too, we see in the form for the Lord's Supper having read the summary of the Ten Commandments and being convicted by them, we read the words, while they, again, they being all of us who've broken the law in one way or another, while they persist in their sins, they shall not take part of this food, which Christ has ordained only for his believers. Otherwise, their judgment and condemnation will be the heavier. We've all inherited the sinful nature of Adam and Eve. We've all inherited their sin-dodging, their desire to perhaps accept that we made a mistake, but it's not all our own fault. We've been steeped in this nature that we've inherited from our conception and birth, Psalm 51 verse 5, and we act on it. Of our own accord, we act on it and we stand condemned. And yet, God speaks to us. We plunged ourselves into that pit. We've brought that condemnation on ourselves. It wasn't God's fault. He didn't create mankind in that way. He created us good and in His image, that is in true righteousness and holiness. He created us so that we could work the garden and live with Him, that we might know Him more deeply every day, that we might taste the sweetness of His presence more every day that we may grow in love for him for eternity forever praising and glorifying him but every day we find ourselves back in that same garden instead of only that one fruit being the gateway to good and evil the whole world is filled with options of good and evil and every time that we choose evil 
Or even when we choose what might be a good thing, but without the motive of glorifying God through it, and so making it less than what God desires of us, we're choosing that fruit. We're choosing to listen to the serpent of the devil, the world, and our own flesh, and take what ought to have been completely and solely devoted to God for ourselves, or for another purpose other than God. We're no better than Adam and Eve. This world is filled with forbidden fruit and we feast on it every day. That is what the Lord's Supper form is trying to explain to us. That is what Scripture teaches us. And it says that while we persist in our sins, we shall not take the food of the bread and the wine of Lord's Supper or our own condemnation will be the heavier. We'll be adding to it, not taking responsibility for our own sins, not owning up to our own weaknesses our own wickedness, finding excuses for our own behavior. Strip yourselves of self-righteousness. Sure, other people may have been to blame as well, but don't let that excuse your own behavior. Come before the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness. Recognize that in yourself, you're totally unable to do any good And even your good motives can't have God as their first priority and so aren't good at all. And humble yourself. You're totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil unless, as your catechism says, unless you are regenerated by the Spirit of God. John 3 verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And there's the joy. We can do nothing unless we're regenerated by the Spirit of God. And the first thing that the Spirit of God does is bring us to a recognition of our own sin and of our own need. He brings us down to our knees in repentance and then He shines a spotlight on Christ. And that's one of the reasons why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper for Him, we find these truly beautiful words. Because it highlights the gospel in a wonderful way. Immediately after all of that judgment, when we are brought to our knees, we read, but all this, beloved sisters, brothers and sisters, is not meant to discourage broken and contrite hearts, as if only those who are without sin may come before the table of the Lord. But we do not come to this supper that, to declare that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. On the contrary, we seek our life outside of ourselves, in Jesus Christ. In doing so, we acknowledge that we are dead in ourselves. We are also aware of our many sins and shortcomings. We do not have perfect faith. And we do not serve God with such zeal as He requires. Daily, we have to contend with the weakness of our faith and with the evil desires of our flesh. Yet by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we're heartily sorry for these shortcomings and desire to fight against our unbelief and to live according to all of the commandments of God. Therefore, we may be fully assured that no sin or weakness which still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God in grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink.
This is the fullness of the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve in seed form after the fall. When man, trembling, fled from God, God in his mercy drew near. After after having proclaimed the judgment that he had already promised beforehand would fall on them because of their sin, he spoke to the serpent, saying in Genesis 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the midst of all of that shame, they hear the voice of the Lord their God. After having their sin laid bare in front of them and hearing the full scope of its consequences, they hear the gospel message. Because that seed that he speaks about is Jesus Christ. Beloved, today that puts us into an even more privileged position than Adam and Eve were ever able to experience. Not only do we hear the gospel message as something that might come, but we can look forward in history from that moment in time and see how the fulfillment of that gospel message has come in the person of Jesus Christ. We received what they did not yet. They received the promise. We have what was promised in Jesus Christ. We have that promise laid before us in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper that we will be able to take part in next week. We have that privilege every time we eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of him. As our confessions put it so eloquently, this is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in drawing near to God, freeing our conscience of fear, terror, and dread, so that we do not follow the example of our first father, Adam, who trembling tried to hide and covered himself with fig leaves. We don't have to tremble in fear. Examining ourselves before God and exposing our sins to him in their fullness, realizing what they mean, Seeing the consequences, the full scope of the consequences that are laid out is not meant to discourage broken and contrite hearts. Rather, it drives us. It drives us to find our life outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. This section of the Heidelberg Catechism brings us straight back to the garden. And in bringing us straight to the garden, it exposes the roots of our own sinful pride, selfish ambition, vain conceit, and more. But we're not left there. We're not left to wallow. But we're brought to see the one who has trampled sin and the devil under his foot. And by the power of the Holy Spirit who works mightily in our hearts, we're brought to hear the call of his voice. Follow me. Amen.